morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Inside the Writer's Studio is also proud to be an affiliate of Libro FM, the audiobook platform that supports your local independent bookstore. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information on Libro FM and a special offer. My guest today is Virginia Cantra, who's The Fairy Tale Life of Dorothy Gale, a new novel inspired by The Wizard of Oz, will be published on December 5th. Virginia, welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio. It's absolutely wonderful to be here, and thanks so much for inviting me. Absolutely. So I grew up, one of the big events of my childhood growing up was watching The Wizard of Oz on TV once a year. Uh, and I, But I never actually read the book. I'm curious to know, what's, what's your personal history with that source material? Well, like you, I am the generation that watched the 1939 movie every year for, well, not all 30 years that it was broadcast, but a lot of them. Mm -hmm. uh, but as a matter of fact, I read the books before I remember the movie. My parents' house was full of books. My English professor father sort of had vast chronological collections on either side of the fireplace in the living room. And in the hallway between my sisters and my bedroom, there were bookshelves that were ours that housed my mom's collection of mostly childhood classics. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So she had and at the time, I didn't really pay attention to the inscription. But of course, when I started this project, I went back and looked. A gift in Christmas of 1909, a copy of not The Wizard of Oz, but Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz. And it, I picked it up because the illustrations were gorgeous. And that was among the first chapter books I read. So then I went to the library and a very kindly librarian steered me through all, teen, all 14 books of the series. And I loved them because they were very episodic and short and the illustrations continued to be gorgeous no matter what edition I looked at. And I liked it because Dorothy was a very ordinary little girl. Mm. And I was a very ordinary little girl. Yeah, those John Arneal illustrations really are stunning. And the, that beautiful early 20th century color printing is, oh gosh, it's not to be beaten, is it? It's, and I, I know we're, we're not we're not on video. This is just to listeners. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Well, I will I will put up over the between now and release day, I will I will put up a copy of this. It's gilded. The cover is gilded. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'll put a up a cover of the original book because it's just amazing. So your new novel is it, it it builds itself as being inspired by The Wizard of Oz, but this is not like um, you know Gregory Maguire's Wicked or some others that have sort of continued the story. What made you want to use this this classic children's book as a template for essentially a contemporary novel for for grownups? Well, 
And and why does a 125-year-old template work so well? Because it does work well. It does work well. Um, I think the characters are iconic. And, you know, they're all missing something. They're mm -hmm. all yearning for something. It's very easy to identify with those characters. You know, there's a hole in all of their hearts. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that was important to me. And yet the book is ultimately about resilience, about hopefulness, about the woman's journey. And since I'm writing women's fiction, you can't do better than the woman's journey. I mean, there's Dorothy on her journey. She's actually, in some respects, the first great American heroine. Yeah, yeah. You know, she's not a prince who, she doesn't, she's not a prince, a European prince going off to, to seek his fortune. She's not even um, an American. I mean, she's she's just she's just this powerless little girl, and she has nothing but this kind heart and kick-ass shoes. <laughs> and she takes on, you know, she she's she's able to do this. So that was what originally attracted me to to Dorothy and her friends. As I dug into the project, and I tend to layer my books, I, I tend to go, here's a possible idea, and then do a bunch of research to see if it's going to work, and sometimes it doesn't. But I was surprised by what a feminist approach L. Frank Baum, the original book, took. It came out in 1900. Um, he was married to the daughter of one of the founders of the suffragette movement in the United States. His marriage vows were so unusual that they were actually reported in the local paper because the promises of the bride were precisely that of the groom. So we assume that she didn't promise to obey him. And these strong women continued to have an impact on his lives. So when you get to Oz, the characters with real power are the women. Yeah. You have the witches, which, you know, McGuire's retelling did or reimagining did such a fantastic job of exploring that whole aspect. And you have Ozma, who is doesn't who who is eventually the ruler and also it in a little twist was briefly a boy. So I was like, this is a time where women's voices are really important and women finding their power is really important. And that was the story I wanted to tell. And that was kind of where I dug in. Yeah. So everything from academia and the, and the misogyny that can happen in those departments to uh, Dorothy's, how shall I put this? Harassment, exploitation uh, by her faculty advisor at the University of Kansas. Those all became really part important parts of the story to getting catcalled on the street, yeah. which at one point she thinks of as the crime of being a woman in public. Th those were important parts of the story for me to tell. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about your Dorothy Gale, your protagonist, and and her situation at, at the beginning of the novel. I don't want to throw spoilers in here, but how what's going on in her life as as the first chapter or two unrolls? 
Yeah, it's, it, it, it's not a spoiler. Um, basically, she is seduced by an older member of the faculty in her graduate writing program who betrays her in a really intimate way. He uses her as the inspiration without her knowledge or consent of the titular character in his own best-selling novel, which is then optioned for a major movie picture. And he takes my Dorothy Gale, my D Gale, and he rewrites her as Destiny Gale and presents her as this sort of creative vampire, sexually rapacious young woman who exploits her older faculty mentor. This ruins her reputation. It brings out all the internet trolls. It destroys her um, place in the department where they she is a graduate student and, and TA. And she's, she's distraught. So she applies to the writing program at Trinity College Dublin and flees this tornado of heartbreak and humiliation, this internet storm, and goes to the Emerald Isle rather than the Emerald City. Yeah, yeah. And the story picks up there. Yeah. I, I feel like there's, there's a certain kind of metafictional irony going on here in that I'm reading a novel about a person who is upset that she has been depicted in a novel. Um, do, do you do you feel that irony? And if so, did you did, did you find ways to kind of leverage that in the in your storytelling? I love that you asked that because nobody ever talks to me about that. Yes, I did it deliberately. Yeah. Um, so so here's the thing: at the beginning of the book, Dorothy is subject to the male gaze. Right, the depiction of her as Dorothy as Destiny Gale is about someone else defining who she is and putting her in a story. Because she is a writer, a large part of her journey is figuring out her own story. So the only way to kind of get around the story of exploiting, and I'm really explaining two, two I mean, I'm also exploiting L. Frank Baum's original work. Mm -hmm. um, but the way to get around that, honestly, was to be as authentic to Dorothy's journey as I could be. So I think she is a kind of every woman in the story, but she's also me. And the idea that she has something worth saying and can go and that's and that the story she has to tell is it ultimately her own story was the way I kind of resolved the book for me. Yeah, yeah. Th this this whole issue of uh, a, a person being used by a writer in, in their book as a character, or maybe in, in this case, abused would be a, a better word, um, is obviously, you know, a really cutting issue for Dorothy. But it's also an issue that we all struggle with as, as authors. Where, where do you stand on this, the, on using real people as, character inspiration when when is it okay and and when does it cross a line so 
I have a sign on my desk that says, if you were in my novel, you'd be dead by now. <laughs> it, is, it is a tricky, tricky line to navigate, especially when the, there are people who are close to you who are an ongoing source of material. <laughs> I think everybody, because we have these curated images online, and I'm not just talking about writers here, I'm talking about anyone who has a presence on social media. You have to decide what's public and what's private. My children for years have, in fact, I still, I still use um, pseudonyms for all of my family members. Mm -hmm. So, and, and their spouses, and I'm very careful about how I use the kids in the family. My husband has an online persona of Italian guy. He actually has his own little fan club of, <laughs> of, people um, who expect, who have met him at writers' conferences over the years, who expect him to, you know, chat with them in the line or or buy them limoncello at dinner or whatever it is. Um, and Because honestly, he's, he's an ongoing source of humor and heart. And he accepts the fact that there's my husband who, I live with, and then there's this edited persona who exists online. Yeah. So I, I do, I do think that writers have to draw from real life. We have to draw from our personal lives or we're not telling the truth. But I think anything that we can do to preserve the privacy of the people that we love is, is necessary, both on social media and in our books, I think Penguin Random House always puts those little declaimers. Any any resemblance to any real life person is completely accidental, which of course is <clears throat> a useful legal thing to say in a book. And I'm I'm frequently grateful and astonished by the people I have put in my books who have not recognized themselves. Yeah. So the, the the novel opens as you have just described, sort of the opening situation, and we we learn a lot of stuff about Dee and about her situation and about her environment in the first, even just in the first few pages of this novel. But we don't learn it through dull and boring narrative summary. Um, can you talk a little bit about the give us a, give us a little miniature class in the art of elegant exposition? Oh, that's so kind of you to say. Let's see. I have a rule. If she can think it, she can say it. It's better if she says it to a another character, preferably not a, you know, a major character who will have an impact in the book. And it's best if they fight about it. Mm. So one of the things I did, I, I know that as writers were frequently taught to avoid flashbacks at all means. 
but in those first few pages of Dorothy Gale, there's a remembered dialogue between her and this is the Wizard of Oz, after all, Auntie M. And that encapsulates a little bit of her of her history. And it's much better to show that as dialogue with her aunt, even though it takes place before the actual action of the novel. And rather than set that off as a prologue or or take or make a vast scene out of it, which would pull us from the now of the story, I try to present things like that the way we remember them, as snippets of dialogue, as thoughts while we're doing something else. But any anytime you can put a thought in dialogue, it's a better thought. Yeah. Or a better way of explaining something. You you tell the story. Uh, we have some chapters that are um, in the first person from Dee's point of view, and then we have some chapters who are that are in the third person from that are centered on other characters. Tell us about your choice to tell tell the story from these multiple viewpoints and these these multiple voices. Well, I had I gave separate chapters to Tim Woodman, which yes. It's, it, who is a, a, a British businessman and, and student in the master's program in business at Trinity College, and to Sam Clary, who dropped out of Trinity in his sophomore year to take over his father's newsagent's shop, and therefore has either lacks the brain or the diploma to show how, how smart he really is. With Riti Carr, who is the, and her name means, is Dilrit, which means lioness in Punjabi. Um, I did not feel the need to give her a separate point of view because she and Dee become roommates and best friends. And so anything that Riti experiences or thinks or feels these two women friends are gonna talk about. Right, right. So she didn't need a point of view. However, with Sam and with Tim, they have experiences that Dee's never on camera. I can't tell their scenes from Dee's point of view because she's not there. Yeah. So they needed their own, their own points of view. And can I just say, I'm thrilled with the casting of the audiobook. Oh. They actually got a British actor, and we auditioned some tapes, and an Irish actor, and their voice qualities are completely different, and they sound so good. Oh, that's great. I, I'm just, I'm, I'm thrilled. I've only heard the auditions. I haven't heard the finished book yet. So, so do you, you have one actor doing the D chapters, one actor doing the Sam chapters, and one actor doing the Tim chapters? Is that how it Yes. Works? Yeah, oh, yes. that's great. That's fantastic. I'm, 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 I've, I've had that that triple narration before with with one of the March sisters' books. Mm -hmm. Beth, you know, Beth, Amy, and and Mama Barmy have their own have their own narrators, and I think that's really helpful. But I did not expect 
the awesomeness, which yeah. is which is getting like the right accents because the actors have that background. Yeah, so that was exciting. Point. You at one point you write about Dorothy. Uh, she was looking about her with big wide eyes, like the world was a magical place, and she was simply waiting for her adventure to begin. So hopeful, so eager, so dot 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 American. What do you see? <laughs> we we kind of touched on this a minute ago, but what do you see as as the essential American traits of Dorothy Gale? And here we can talk about your Dorothy Gale and Bob's Dorothy Gale. What, what makes them American and what makes that different from if they weren't American? They're naive. Mm -hmm. They're resilient. They're enterprising. They believe in fresh starts. When Baum wrote his book, this is still during the time of the great Western migration. He went well, he was actually raised, I think, in Syracuse, New York, and and went west. He opened a little emporium. And this is where when I'm saying enterprising, the reason I'm bringing up L. Frank Baum's history is I think he typifies what he was writing about. He he opened up a little general goods store that that supplied this a tiny town in I don't know if it was Kansas or or South Dakota but but out west and when it failed he ra ran a newspaper in town um and when that failed he went to Chicago and I mean he was an actor he was he, he was constantly re he was a little bit like the the Oz as presented in the in the movie the guy who who tells fortunes and yeah, Professor Marvel yeah yeah Professor Marvel that's the one um, so he was this kind of I won't say con man but but he was a a, a quick constant reinventor of himself and one of the things Dorothy does in this book is reinvent herself. And she's also the catalyst for the other characters. They are all, I mean, in The Wizard of Oz, how do we encounter them? The scarecrow literally has a pole up his back. Yeah. <laughs> the, 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 the tin woodman is frozen. He's rusted in place. And the lion is afraid to move. It's Dorothy's decision to reinvent her life and to make a fresh start that gets all of these characters moving. Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, I, th I think that's a, I think that's, that's, and, and of course she learns from them as well. It's, I, it's, she, I don't think until she starts to see herself through their eyes that she sees herself very clearly or the other people around her. I mean, even in Dublin, there are people who she initially gives the benefit of the doubt to that maybe she shouldn't. So she does learn to see things more clearly. She still has that that sort of naivete to her. Um, but yeah, so that's that, that would be my take on her as an American heroine. 
the when she comes to Dublin, I love the scene. She's she's wandering around and just sort of taking it all in and the Europeanness of it. And she says that she goes, "I've never been to the Wizarding World theme park, but this is what I imagine it must be like." Um, and that I, I found that a really telling comment about sort of the collision of reality and fiction in this character. Can you can you talk about the kind of the relationship between fiction and reality in, in Dee's life? Well, she's someone who's lived very much in her head. And in her, I think she's 25 in the book, about, um, which I sort of think of as the contemporary coming of age. Where her head is has been a pretty gray place. And I wanted to recapture that iconic movie moment uh, in, in that you will remember, that I remember, that I hope listeners will remember when we go from the gray farmhouse, which is, has been in sepia tones and it's snatched up into the sky and it's dumped into Munchkin land. And our protagonist opens the door and it's Technicolor, which in 1939 had even more impact probably. But I wanted to recapture, this is actually a really, I've been talking about, well, there's all this, you know, sexism and, and, but this was a joyful book for me. This was, this book made me happy to write. And I wrote it near the end of the pandemic when I was desperate to escape over the rainbow or really anywhere. And so, so to have, I think she's great because she brings this fictional perspective of hope. She's constantly like reimagining things, but as the book goes on, it's her life that becomes the story. She, she is able to integrate her imagination with real choices and real decisions she makes for herself. And I think that's part of her growing up. That's part of her coming of age. You know, you talk talking about that iconic moment where it goes into Technicolor. And I, I remember as a young child, we had a black and white television. You know, it wasn't until I think I was a teenager that I realized that there was this transformation. And, and in a way, that's very sort of symbolic of, of the way we discover life as we as we age. Um, but there are other ways in which you incorporate um, our kind of cultural memory of, of Oz. Um, you do it through vocabulary and through metaphor and through imagery. Can, can you talk a little bit about some of the more subtle ways that you sort of just drop these little Wizard of Oz? So candy? many rainbows, so yeah. many rainbows. <laughs> Um, this will feel a little bit like a digression. So just That's okay. stop me if, if, if it goes too far afield. My sons were both in Odyssey of the Mind. Yeah, our daughter did that, yeah. Okay, I was a coach. For people who are not familiar with Odyssey of the Mind, it consists of giving school children a problem, asking them to solve the problem and make up a story to go with it. And, and 
it's not that bad, but it's, it was sort of like, I, I, I remember the first time I got my problem set that my team could choose from. And I looked at my husband and said, it's like giving a kid a purple balloon, a two by four and a light bulb and telling them to make a car that runs. <laughs> when you're given something with as much in it as the Wizard of Oz books and the movie. And I did want to reference both because I think both are really an important part of the culture. You get to kind of pick your Easter eggs. It was really important to me that Dee's story stand on its own, that you would be able to read it without going, what's that? Um, and there are certainly cultural references in there. We referenced Harry Potter. Yeah. Um, there's one where she compares the, the buildings at Trinity College to Pemberley. You know, I, I did try, there's, because she is a writer and they're talking about writing and they're talking about Irish writers in particular, there are lots of references to um, those characters. But I think there's just, it's, it's, it's play. It's writer play. Mm -hmm. It's reader play. I hope readers will go through, I've read that, that comic book monstrous, or I, I've, I've picked up Sally Rooney, or I want them, I want them to feel those little shocks of pleasure and recognition as they're reading. Cause it was a, it was a shock and a pleasure to me um, to include them. But I don't think you need them. I there's so many you know you talk about cultural references and I and just in the first few pages we have references to Oz to Harry Potter to Anne of Green Gables. I think Narnia shows up pretty early on. Um, we know that you've also written Little Women uh, novels. Obviously, classic children's books are hold a special place for you in your life. And it made me think about this controversy that was in the Guardian two or three years ago, where somebody wrote an op-ed that said that books that are written for children can't be considered literature. And I wonder what you think about whether books that are written for children can be, why we consider them literature. Well, I certainly don't want to get into an argument with anyone writing for the Guardian. <laughs> But I couldn't disagree more. Yeah, yeah. First of all, I think separating the, the separation of books written for children and the books that adults should read is a relatively modern construct and it's stupid. Mm -hmm. When Little Women was published, it was read widely everywhere. Yeah. Um, some of the books that we now relegate to ch as children, some, some of the books we relegate as children's literature are books that are part of our history that should be read by everyone. Um, wow, how many different ways can I say this? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm interested in, okay, C.S. Lewis's Narnia Chronicles, which one retelling I will never take on. Um, <laughs> these are the books that shaped me. Yeah. 
Yeah. These are the books that formed me. I've been writing now for 25 years. And I am increasingly drawn to the stories that had that impact. When when you create a character, they always say that there are like three things that you should think about. Um, it's sort of like a formative event from childhood, a formative event in their adolescence, and a formative event in their recent history that all kind of create this psychic wound that needs to be addressed. I don't know about psychic wounds, but I think that as human beings, there are certain reading experiences that are that for those of us who, who grew up with books, who love books. There are books that you read as a child or books that you read as a 13 or 14 year old that had, had such a thing as fandom exist, you would have been in the fandom, you know? Um, these are the stories that, that are dear to us, that stay with us, that form part of how we look at the world. So to dismiss those as those can't be literature, no, I couldn't disagree yeah, any more I mean, than I do. To me, Narnia, a lot of these books you mentioned are the are the books that taught me what literature is. And, and I think even more importantly, taught me how we as human beings tell stories. Um, how we tell stories, but also how we navigate the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, there's the hero's journey, you know, it's like, it's like, this is the path that you must choose. Where, who are your mentors? Who are your adversaries? Who are your companions along the way? What, it, where is it that you think you're going? That's, childhood is so tough. Adolescence is so lonely. It's like, thank God we have these touchstones along the way. Yeah. So yeah, I keep, now I'm doing Anne of Green Gables, by the way. Oh, good, good. Um, so there's a there's a there's another fairly major character in this book that we haven't gotten to yet, and that is um, Tony's, I mean, Dee's sister, Tony. Yes. And they grew up with a, a largely absent mother and a completely absent father. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the role that, that parents and parent figures play for some of the different characters in this book. That's a, another great question. Um, okay, there's a reason why all the Disney princesses are orphans. Yeah. <laughs> Once you remove that, that person you call, and I think especially because I'm, I'm focused on the woman's journey, for a lot of people, the person you call is your mother. Once you remove that support, I think that it really forces you to figure out what your own resources are. One of the other things that I am revisiting in my own writing again and again is that mother is is the mother-daughter relationship and because i am writing coming of age novels and because a lot of young adults are separating from their parents in their 20s rather than say as previous generations may have done in their teens i think one of the jobs our life jobs of our of our 20s is to 
figure out how our parents screwed us up. <laughs> and then the next the next decade or so we can we can figure out how to forgive them and love them anyway, you know, but I, I think, I think, so that was, that's an important thing. So we have um, Judy Gale, the artist who travels the world doing art installations and, and, and leaves her variously spawned daughters with her brother and his, and Aunt M. We have Aunt M herself and one of the pleasures of writing the book, quite honestly, for me, was to see if Dorothy looks at Aunt M the same way at the end of the book as she does at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And then we have these other mother figures she encounters, who wouldn't be Janet Clary, who is Sam Clary's mom. Um, there's Glinda Norton, who is my stand-in, of course, for Glinda the Good, who is very good presenting. There is Maeve Ward, who ends up being Dee's supervisor, academic supervisor, whom everyone and everyone warns her off Maeve because she's a witch. That's her her reputation in the department is, oh my God, the witch. Um, I think watching. D with these other women teaches her something about her own role. It teaches her something about her own mother. And of course, the other person who's important is is, is her little sister Tony, or as as they called each other as children, Dodo and Toto. So so one of the things that Dee needs to learn is, is she her sister's mother or her sister? And where does her responsibility there end? So it, it's just, it was just different ways of, of revisiting that same, that different dynamics about uh, with similar relationships. It was a lot of fun. So the, this novel, it takes place largely in Dublin, but we do have these, have some sort of retrospective looking at Kansas. Um, and the, I've not been to Dublin, but I've been to Ireland and I have I have family who live in small town Kansas. So I've been to small town Kansas. And, and the thing that strikes me about these two places is not just that they're completely different from one another, but that they both are what you expect them to be and, and are different from what you expect them to be. Um, but I wondered if you could talk about just the importance of place and specifically this kind of dichotomy of place in the novel. So I mentioned that I started writing this book during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. What that means, and originally, Dorothy's destination is always the Emerald City, right? So I thought, she'll go to Seattle. <laughs> but that didn't feel magical enough to me. Mm -hmm. It didn't feel big enough. It didn't feel different enough. I really did want the sense of being transported, partly because as I say, I was, it was locked down and I was desperate to go someplace. Um, but also because yes, it was important that she go over the rainbow, that she go elsewhere. So at the time I started writing it, I couldn't travel. I got a, a subscription to the Irish Times. Google Map became my new best friend. Uh -huh. I had a, okay. a 
I had a wonderful correspondence going with Bernice Murphy, who is an associate professor of popular literature at Trinity College Dublin and who hooked me up with things like catalogs and stuff that I needed. Um, but as I said, I, 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 wanted, I wanted that sense of, of magic. I have no connection, personal connection with Ireland at all until near the end of the writing of the book, we got to go. What I did not anticipate at all was that I would feel exactly that sense of wonder and homecoming. Because I had, and you're a writer, you know this, when yeah. you research a place, I can find my way around Dublin better than I can find my way around North Raleigh, North Carolina, where <laughs> I live. Um, I was grabbing my husband's arm and going, we're crossing the River Liffey, or, or that's the church where Dee goes on, yeah. on Christmas, yeah. or you know, there's the Grand Canal. And it was just that pink sky that you see in the background of the cover. Mm -hmm. That's from a photo we took. Our airplane landed at dawn. And we took the bus into Ballsbridge, which is the neighborhood where BTN, D, and Tim all live. Um, and we dropped off our bags because it was like 5.30 in the morning and went for a little walk. And there was the pink sky over this little, this wooden, there's this stone bridge and the Grand Canal at that point is not very grand. I mean, you could you could throw a, a rock from one bank to another. And the, the pink sky reflected in the black water and the old stone bridge and the trees all around. And you're in the middle of the city. Yeah. Um, and then, and it, and the whole, the whole trip was like that. I, I, it just, it was magical. It was other. Um, it was wonderful. Not, not dissing Kansas in any way, but, but, but no, wow. Yeah. yeah I, I understand that feeling. And I, I definitely recommend to our listeners, write a novel and then go to the place where it is set. And because there's something marvelous about walking down the street and going, oh, Magda lived there. Oh, that's, that's where they had lunch you know all as you said um so so just to break in if any listeners go to dublin look for the literary pub crawl they it's one of the best walking tours ever it's supposed to take two hours i think we finally flagged out after about four you only stop at four pubs but they're, they're, it's given by actors in Dublin. They take you around. And there's this wonderful sense of how the history and the literature and the architecture of Dublin all is all this wonderful, cohesive, messy whole. Mm -hmm. And they, so they act out bits from plays and, and poems. And you don't have to really know much about English literature to just drink it down like a strong shot. It's wonderful. That's you great. should all do that. Well, this, I think readers are going to have so much fun with this book. Um, and we certainly look forward to seeing you. You're going to be here at Bookmarks on 
uh, the 6th of December to sign copies. And so I know a lot of our listeners will be here for that. Um, we do like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. You should be able to okay. answer each of these are just in just a few words, but uh, I think they'll give us some insight into you and into your writing. So we'll begin. What word do you love to work into your writing? Glimmer. What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Moist. <laughs> uh, where's your favorite place to write? Right here in my office. Where could you never write? I don't think there is any place I could never write. That's a great answer. To what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? Sentence fragments. What was the first book you remember reading? C. Dick. C. Jane. <laughs> what are you reading now? Well, I'm going through multiple copies of Anne of Green Gables. Um, and I'd have to reach for my, and I think, oh, it's Christmas time. So at Christmas time, I always read old Mary Bala historical romances. They're oh, my, like my total comfort read. What book would you like to have written? We've, how many times can we reference Narnia today? Okay. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I'm not good enough or wise enough, but oh my goodness, yeah. that book. What sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will? So I've been doing this for 25 years. I'm lucky because every time I've wanted to do something else, I've had time to do it. And mm -hmm. so I'm doing exactly what I want to do. You want to ask me if I want to play honky-tonk piano, though. Yeah, that. <laughs> and finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? That I made a hard time easier. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and my guest today has been Virginia Cantra, whose novel, The Fairy Tale Life of Dorothy Gale, will be available wherever books are sold on December 5th. Virginia, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Charlie. It's been so much fun. Inside the Writer's Studio is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. Inside the Writer's Studio is proud to be affiliated with Libro FM. Unlike other audiobook platforms, Libro FM supports your local independent bookstore. Whether you buy a single book or, like me, a monthly subscription, you can link your account to your local store or to Bookmarks to support literary community. For a special two-for-one offer, go to Libro.fm and use the discount code WRITERS. If you've enjoyed Inside the Writer's Studio, please consider leaving a rating or review online at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside the Writer's Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. I'll be taking a little time off over the holidays, but I'll be back in the new year with more guests, more books, and more great conversations. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion. Music